You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. Happy New Year. I hope you all had a good Christmas break and you're looking forward to uh, everything that 2019 has to bring. I know that I certainly am. Um, You're not going to believe this, but uh, I actually messed up the audio again on this show. Um, After just editing it, I realized that I didn't uh, use the mic audio. I once again used the laptop audio. I think this one was actually recorded before the last one that we released uh, around the Justin one, which we did the same thing with. So clearly there's a few little technical errors that I'm still ironing out. You can still hear it absolutely fine. Luckily, um, the guest speaks very loudly, but um, yeah, I... I am aware and uh, I am uh, working on it, so bear with me. It's very frustrating, uh, trust me. Um, This week's show, uh, we have Mark Dunning. Uh, Mark is a BBL coaching veteran, um, someone that used to be at the forefront of uh, coach development in the UK uh, through the Basketball Coaches Association. Um, And you can clearly hear from from this conversation just how passionate he is about it. But unfortunately, he is now completely checked out uh, and is very, very... um, sort of little involvement uh, with the game, uh, which is incredibly sad. And it does leave me asking questions about how that's happened. You know, he's a perfect example of one of these great resources that we have um, in the UK that unfortunately is not being used to help push the game forward. And so he needs to be involved. He should be involved. And I hope that um, that changes in the near future. Before we do get into the show, uh, obviously a quick sponsorship message for our Patreon account. Um, we've been growing our, our supporters on there recently and uh, we would love your support. We're coming directly to our audience, directly to you, to ask if you have a pound, two pounds, three pounds, five pounds, ten pounds every single month that you'd be willing to donate to support us, to support our work so that we can become 100% independent and financially sustainable um, and dedicate even more time and resource to doing this, which is what we love, uh, helping grow and promote British basketball um, and grow the British basketball media landscape. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash hoopsfix, you can sign up there. Um, and if you have any questions, obviously you can drop me a line and uh, I will happily answer them. But any support you can give us will be hugely appreciated. As always, if you're listening on iTunes, please do give us a rating and review. It goes a long way in helping uh, spread the podcast far and wide. Same if you can uh, screenshot it and put it on Instagram stories or Snapchat and help promote it and push push it. Uh, it would be hugely appreciated um, as we need all the support that we can get. And then finally, if you want some... Uh, sort of private interaction uh, rather than doing it publicly you can email me sam at hoopsfix.com I'm open to all feedback at all times Um, and of course if you're watching on YouTube uh, please do leave a comment below I reply to every single one Uh, would love to hear your feedback anyway that is enough from me Uh, here is this week's show with me and Mark Dunning Mark welcome to the show thanks Sam thanks for having me obviously there is a a lot of stuff to cover um, and there might be a, a lot of people that maybe haven't heard of you before so if you were to meet someone and kind of introduce yourself um, and explain uh, from a basketball standpoint um, your career. Give us the brief uh, sort of minute, two minutes of kind of what you've done um, and then we'll go into detail on, on various bits as, as, as the conversation develops. Um, I got into basketball generally at school like a lot of people did and um, by accident in a way and uh, obviously developed a real love for the game as a player and managed to have a couple of serendipitous moments through my school career, which we might get into later, might be of interest, um, which propelled me onto kind of bigger and better things in terms of junior National League basketball. And then having left school, um, caught the bug as a player, I went to college, uh, teacher training college, to do a teaching degree. And there was basketball there. It was actually pretty successful. I went to St. Mary's College in Twickenham. 
and in my final year, um, I became a player coach. Again, there was a, a serendipity about that, um, and there was a lot of um, links, if you like, uh, between our college and Crystal Palace, as it was then, the perennial national champion. I think they, by that, uh, the point in history I'm talking about, they'd won maybe eight in a row national championships. So again, we can get into that a bit later because that um, really was the uh, spark to my basketball career as well as my coaching career. And um, off of that, I managed to get a, a gig uh, to start my coaching career as an assistant coach at Crystal Palace. So this is early 80s. So in terms of, uh, in terms of the playing days, obviously, uh, you know, when you look back on your level as a player, uh, you know, how good were you? Um, was it a thing that uh, you maybe just knew that you wanted to coach or was the, was the playing thing, thing something that you pursued in the first place? That's a good question because obviously uh, being vertically challenged <laughs> um, at school, it didn't matter so much. Um, I was one of those kids that, like a lot of the kids, you did all the sports so the migration into basketball was, was going to be seamless. And as I say, it was um, my school didn't do basketball. I went to an all-boys board, boarding school um, down in Hampshire. And uh, it just so happened it was, a, uh, it was run by uh, Silesian priests and brothers. And they're a worldwide, they're a global um, uh, brotherhood. One of the uh, uh, priests had taught in America. I believe in near Boston, he happened to come back to England to teach at our school and obviously had been introduced to basketball in the States. There was no basketball in our place um, and the PE teacher at the time probably wasn't going to introduce it, I don't know. Um, so I think I'm in my second year of school now, year eight as it's now known. Um, and he went to the PE teacher and said, oh, do you want me to introduce basketball? I've done a little bit in this, blah, blah, blah. So there was a bunch of us that obviously went out. We did all the sports. And that's how, completely by accident, I got introduced as a player. Now, obviously, being at boarding school, we had loads of time to practice. Um, and he was there, obviously, as a, a living priest. So he was, he was coaching us. By the time I got to the sixth form at school, um, there was a few of us that were pretty good by then. And obviously, we caught the bug. Plus, uh, you mentioned about you know, was there a sort of coaching element? Interestingly, um, the sixth form in those days, we seemed to have a lot more um, responsibility, if you like, and we became, the more responsible kids um, became a little bit of uh, the sort of right-hand man of teachers. So basically, the PE teacher um, asked me to coach some of the younger teams, like the first and second years. Um, so that was interesting in itself, but I was obviously still playing. And then the next bit of serendipity, my school was in Farnborough in Hampshire. Now, round the corner, literally from our school, was a, a sports shop by the name of Forceball. Now, older viewers and listeners will probably remember those days because this was one of the first and only stores in the whole of the country that sold anything to do with basketball. Wow. And it was really, I mean... You what could, sort of year are we talking about? We're Randy? talking uh, 1971. Uh, okay, okay. By then? Yeah. Um, 
you couldn't find any basketball gear in those days. Uh, you'd be lucky to get sort of a, a pair of rock and all canvas high tops. And again, the older, the older people will remember that. So anyway, the point of this story is that the owner of that store was a guy called George Whitmore. Now, some of the old folk will, around the country listening and watching this will remember George. And um, we were in there all the time. There was about four or five of us that were, became junkies, even, even at that point. So we were about uh, 16, 17, going on 18 by the time we left school, obviously. And uh, we were going in there, anything he would get, like new, and he started to then get some of the original, like Chuck Taylor's canvas, all colours. Then he started stocking the Dr. J model. You know, there was only really Converse. Nike hasn't started. They started in 1972, as you probably know. And we would buy everything. And he was, by this time, supplying, you know, other clubs around the country. And, of course, just mail order. There was no internet in those days. Um, but here's the interesting thing. George, who was, was, by the way, an England and Great Britain international as a player, was also um, involved in the army basketball. Okay. Now, Aldershot, as you probably know, is a huge army town, which was just down the road from Farnborough. Well, George ran a junior team, and we were just playing in a normal 60 by 40 box gym in those days. There was no sports halls, and uh, he invited us to uh, these three or four buddies of mine and myself to go along to his junior practices, and here we go. We enter this huge, I remember the name of the gym, it's called Fox Gym in the uh, Aldershot garrison there, and it's a full-size court, and we're like wooden floor. It was unbelievable. So... That's when we got bitten big time. And of course, the level of play now that we were playing at went up because we were just playing school basketball at that point. Were you, uh, I mean, was it very much a case of being only aware of the basketball that was taking place in the small pockets that you were playing? Or did you have an idea of sort of the wider scene? Because I'm pretty sure, wasn't the National League started in 1972? Yeah, it was around that time. Actually, yeah, a couple of years before that, I believe. Okay. Um, uh, obviously, uh, Crystal Palace, SCP, as they were known in those days, they were one of the founder members, along with Bruno Roughcutters from the, the North and a couple of other teams I can't remember now. Yeah. Um, I, I believe Avenue, around this area, East London. Okay. Yeah, so, um, yes. But I we weren't really aware of that so much because... You were just focusing on playing. Yeah, yeah. we were just like at school, playing, doing all the sports. Obviously... You know, trying to get our A levels done as well in between yeah. basketball. So uh, it was only through knowing George Whitmore um, and a couple of his associates um, that we we kind of realised, oh, hang on a minute, there's some there's a wider world of basketball out there. We want a piece of it. And again, <laughs> my third bit of serendipity, and I won't use that word again. Um, <laughs> By the time we got to our what was then the second year six, so uh, what year? What would it be? Thirteen now. Yeah. We were obviously pretty good, um, and we managed to play some exhibit, you know, uh, scrimmage games yeah. against some sort of older teams. One of them being the University of Surrey. Okay. Now, one of our players had left our school the year before, went to the University of Surrey. There's a little bit of the link. He knew that we were pretty good and compete with, could, could compete with them, you know, just in, in friendly games, practice games and whatever. But here's the thing. 
we went over and played them over at Guildford a couple of times, and that's when I first met a gentleman by the name of Brian Naismith. Now, he'll feature in my story later on, but again, it's important, and okay. I didn't know it at the time. So, so what were so from there, um, kind of at what point? I mean, I'm assuming you were still playing. Kind of yeah. at what point did it become about coaching? Kind of what happened with your playing to make you well, make the switch to coaching? When I got to uh, college, um, obviously the focus was was on playing completely, and um, we had a pretty good team, as I say. And in fact, in my uh, in my third year of four, um, we so by college you mean university? Yes, yeah, St yeah, Mary's okay. College is now um, okay. St Mary's University. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in those days, you could qualify as a teacher in three years, and then you could do an extra year of a Bachelor of Education B.Ed., okay. uh, which most of us did. Right. Um, but in the third year, we actually won the British Colleges Championships, um, beating um, the then uh, Great Britain coach, Vic Ambler, and his University of Exeter team. Okay. Um, so that was a big win for us. And what happened next was the guy who was coaching us, who was a lecturer, left St. Mary's to take up a professorship at the University of Leeds. We were left without a coach, but a really good team, a championship team. And we couldn't let it kind of break up. So the group got together and asked myself and another uh, guy on the team, who's still a, a good friend of mine to, to today, um, would we want to coach the team? And we said yes. And that's when Basically, I started, quote unquote, proper coaching. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, um, at this point, had, like, was it still uh, in terms of your knowledge? Because I'm fascinated by the kind of the state of the game, like the wider picture on a national stage. Um, you know, obviously, I would assume the university team you probably did a bit of traveling up and down, but like, were there names back then that, like, even when you were at university, that you remember that people were talking about, of, like, these were the top talents in the country that were coming through, like the names or the players, like, kind of give us a, um, a lay of the land, like, of the, of the scene uh, in the UK at that point? Yeah, the um, what happened in those years, and uh, just a quick reference for dates here. Um, yeah, this would be 1975 okay. through 1979. Okay. Those were my, my years there. Now, in that time, uh, the National League was expanding and, and improving. But also, and I, I, there's a lot of people who can attest to this, I think, to this day, the London basketball scene was as good, sometimes better, than the National League. That's how good it was. And there was three main leagues, the London League, the Capital League, and the Middlesex League. Um, the, excuse me. Those were the three uh, top leagues with the best uh, sort of competition and teams. So my horizons really were just in and around London. And um, because I wanted to play as much basketball as possible, I used to basically, you know, jump on the tube and traipse around town literally to get a run anywhere and everywhere and for example I don't, you might have heard this in I know you speak to a lot of people North London College which probably doesn't even exist anymore yeah. um, a guy called Tom Payne another old timer um, used to have basically what we now know today as open gym um, so there was always a run there and there was some really good players used to show out so we used to go there 
there was a run at Swiss Cottage, the old swimming baths down there. And uh, I remember there was a, a court downstairs and it, that was one of the old pools. So the, the floor was really springy. Um, and um, we used to go down there and literally wherever. Um, so I got to know kind of all the people involved in basketball around the London area. Refs, coaches, obviously players. And because now the college team, we were kind of limited. We wanted to play more games. So we basically would play as many uh kind of friendly games against these other teams from these other leagues until we eventually actually joined the Middlesex League ourselves to give us some more games as well as the college games. So um, whilst I was at college as well, um, and by the way, um, when I was sort of traipsing around, um, you kind of obviously make contacts with various people, and I managed to make contacts with um, the old LLSK team. Now, I don't know if you've come across them, Right, they became eventually the Embassy All-Stars, which then became Milton Keynes, um, and then they, they went defunct. But, you know, back in those days, and I believe he's back on the scene now, Peter Sproggis was one of the, you know, England's top, top players. He was on that team, along with uh, uh, names like Stu Turpy, Mick Flanagan, Stu Earl, uh, Dave Shelley. And I was going up against these guys, you know, as a 5'8", as that's generous, um, point guard who couldn't shoot but I could really pass and play defence. That's what I always used to tell my players <laughs> when they used to ask me, Coach, what type of player were you? That's what I always used to say. Um, so those were great days. Um, you know, it was kind of raw um, and I got to know these guys and then, of course, would travel along to uh, the Michael Sobel Sports Centre at the you know at the end of the Piccadilly line. I lived on the bottom of it, um, and there they were playing National League basketball. So and I knew these guys, and again, the, the the London scene was really vibrant. A lot of good players coming through. The other sort of point of note here is that the Crystal Palace team were close to St Mary's, as I mentioned before. For various reasons, one of them being that um, their Americans at that time were Jimmy Guyman and Mark Sayers. They used to come because, you know, South London, the Twickenham wasn't a big deal in those days. There wasn't as much traffic. <clears throat> to get an extra bit of training and everything in, they used to come and use our facilities at college. Because obviously during the day, if there weren't lectures in there, it was empty. Yeah. So they used to be able to shoot around and, and work out in our gym. Well, of course, as I'm passing the sports or if I hear a bouncing ball, I'm looking in. And there they were working out. And that was my first insight into seeing how pro players uh, put the work in to get better. And, of course, I'd pop my head in and speak to them and get to know them. And eventually, uh, if we didn't have lectures, there, again, there was a two or three of us that would go and work out with them. You know, just shoot and what have you. And... You know, I mean, Jimmy, even to this day, people will still say he was one of the best Americans to ever play in our league. Um, so that was incredible. But again, it got me a little hook into the sort of the world of, of National League and what was going on at that time. How would you describe um, the culture of, of basketball and around basketball at that point? Like, was there 
you know, as a spectator sport, were there a lot of people showing up to watch these national uh, basketball league games? Um, was it getting mainstream press coverage? Like, yeah, what, what, uh, yeah, from a cultural standpoint, uh, where did basketball stand? Uh, I wasn't aware so much of that at that time. Um, I think, if I remember rightly, I used to go mainly to Sobel because it was easy on the tube, and also to the Central YMCA in Tottenham Court Road because yeah. that was another easy tube ride for me. And uh, the the, uh, the well, they were known as the Central Y back in those days, and uh, the coach was Malcolm Chamberlain. I remember. There were some awesome Americans played on that team. Alan Bunting, a guy called Bobby Cooper, who was probably one of the best dunkers ever. And I've watched all the dunk contests from the NBA um, over 30 years. And this guy could have won a few of them. He was incredible. Um, there was the Akers brothers, Nigel and Adrian, I remember. Um, um, and the crowds, it's difficult to gauge because... It wasn't a very big facility, but I remember there was a, a like a balcony, and that was always packed. So ballpark, maybe between five hundred and a thousand. That's yeah. kind of hedging my bets. Yeah. Uh, Sobel, maybe more. In those days, I remember you know being kind of wowed by the crowd because that was my first experience of going to see, if you like, proper games with a crowd. Um, and again. I wasn't so much aware of the, the culture in terms of press, media coverage or anything like that until, again, I, I don't know how I, I stumbled into this situation, but there was a team playing in Division 2 at that time called Camden and Hampstead. Now, uh, people might know some names from there. Bob Mackay was playing for them. Uh, Vince uh, he was known as Razak in those days. Yeah. Then he became Macaulay Razak. Now he's Macaulay. Uh, Vince was on that team. Um, I'm trying to remember some other names. Uh, Charlie Bannerman was on that team. Anyway, uh, they asked me to help them out with their PR. And only then was I kind of in that world where I was contacting local newspapers and stuff. And they were covering it like well, you, you get the whole of the back page. Really? Um uh, I remember what was the name of the. Uh, I can't remember the name of the newspaper, um, but they were willing to be involved yeah, in cover. Absolutely, it. Yeah. And, and I remember even to this day. I think they put a color picture sometimes of action shots from our game. Really. Um, so that was all again around about this same time for me. Um, so I was kind of still. This would be my towards my final year at college, maybe the first year out, um, when I also got involved in a local league team called the Greenford Cardinals. And that was in the Middlesex League. And again, we had a pretty good team. We were always near the top. In fact, we won it a couple of times. And we would uh, play in that league and also, I believe, the Capital League at that time. So again, lots of travel around London, getting to know everybody. Um, they got Everybody got to know me, which was important later on for me when I wanted to forge a career in coaching. And again, I was kind of, it was a local league club, but we had big aspirations. And uh, we would started doing things the right way. And um, by that time, they realized that I, you know, probably could be a coach for them. And they asked me to be the head coach. And I was also doing a bit of PR for them as well. So again, the, the, interaction with media, 
trying to go out and get sponsors, literally on foot, you know, knocking on shopkeepers' doors and well, stuff. Did you have much success getting sponsorship? Yeah. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think partly because it hadn't been tried before. Right. You know, basketball, what's that? The old cliche, back, especially back in those days. And suddenly you go into a sports shop, for example. One, they probably never had a guy come in to ask for sponsorship or advertising. And two, they wanted to know about basketball. So sometimes it was almost an easy sell. And we managed, even as a local league team, we managed to get a fair bit of support yeah. in terms of equipment sometimes, you know, a little bit of cash. Yeah. And yeah, so again, that gave me a little insight into that side of the sport. So at what point did you get involved with Crystal Palace? Because I, I thought that your first job was with Crystal Palace uh, Juniors. But obviously no. not. Obviously not. No. What um, happened again? So, yeah. This is all down to links and networking and contact. As I said to you, the um, the link between the, the the two clubs, College and and Palace, had already been formed. You know, almost before I got there. But anyway, when I got there, I suddenly realised, um, right, these this is the number one team in the country. We've got a little bit of. I've already met a couple of the players. We had a couple of guys on our college team who were either aspiring to make their team or, or had already made it. One guy in particular, again, some viewers will remember this guy's name, Dave Fitzsimons, who was actually uh, an Irish international. Um, so anyway, I left college and one of the guys that was left on our team, uh, by the way, I, I got a teaching job as a PE teacher in West London. Okay. So again, I was still all around the London area. Um, and one of the guys who was left at, at, at uh, college was Richard Rudd, who, again, people would know. He was a Crystal Palace player, but was still, I think he was prob I think he was two years below me in college. So we still had the links, and my Greenford Cardinals club would come and scrimmage the college team. We had lots of links. There was an overlap because, again, one or two of the college players wanted to play more basketball, so they come to play for us in the league. I said to Richard one day, I said, Rich, you've got to get me an introduction into the folks at Crystal Palace because I want to, I want to coach there. Had you made the decision at this point that you wanted to be a professional coach? Yes, because I've been coach. I started to coach Greenford Cardinals, and my playing, even though I was still playing whenever I could, um, and I love to play even to this day. Um, um, in fact, um, just a few months ago, um, my ex teammates from the Greenford Cardinals played in a veterans tournament over in Ireland. So we're all 60-somethings, <laughs> and we obviously had to get together over the summer to get some scrimmage time in. So awesome. I was there. Awesome. It was great. Awesome. We had a blast. But um, because I, I was now coaching at the Cardinals, and you know, you remember me saying that the, the London area basketball was a really good level. So I got the, I'm like, yeah, this is what I want to do, but I'm not doing it in a local league. I want to I get to the big time. Crystal Palace was the number one team. I figured... Yeah, it's a 40-minute drive. That's where I want to be. So I said to Richard, get me an intro. So this was the summer of uh, 81. Okay. He says, fine, come on down. I get introduced to Terry Doherty, who is part owner, general manager, and David Last. And I 
I literally, I remember to this day, I didn't ask them. I said to them, I'm going to be your assistant coach next season. And they didn't, they didn't, you know, kick me out the door. They said, oh, okay. <laughs> and that's how I started. And uh, so there I was in the pre-season of 81. And I was the assistant to Bill Sweek, who was the original head coach, and Danny Palmer, who was the assistant coach. And I was the, the, the second assistant. And that's how I started. So, um, you know, Crystal Palace at that time, let's talk about it as a club. Uh, you know, in that era, obviously it was the club. Yeah. Um, you know, what was, like, what? well, it'd be interesting actually to ask why, why, what separated Crystal Palace? Why was Crystal Palace the club? That's a good question. Um, and I don't know. I guess, as is usual with, with basketball, um, they had they were lucky enough to have some of the best players. Now, London London basketball, and of course the folks in Birmingham and Manchester are going to kill me for this, London basketball in, in the 80s, um, probably into the 90s, was the hotbed. Um, there was probably more people playing, although Manchester eventually, you know... Thanks to the efforts of people like Joe Forber, you know, they, they had massive participation. But they weren't able, for some reason, to produce the best players as we were down in London. So I guess um, that may have been part of the reason. Also, and I've never really thought about this as to why they, they were the best, or I could say we by that point, I was there. Um, maybe David and Terry had, had a vision and they were able to get, obviously, two of the best Americans, and then two more of the best Americans, because Alton Bird came along when I was there. Again, one of the best American players to ever play here. Um, and they also got in early on the what we used to call the dual nationals. In other words, guys with British passports. And we had a couple of those guys early on, whereas other teams didn't. Right. So maybe that was it. I don't know. It's a good question. And you, you talk about London being a hotbed of talent um, and producing players. Like, you know, who were the clubs uh, that were producing the junior talent that was going on to that were going on to sort of professional careers and stuff? Well, certainly. And who it, were the coaches as well? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. In my in my early days there, so you know, I came in as the assistant coach to the men's team, um, as I told you. Um, and by the way, Bill Sweet left before the season began to take a job in France and Danny became the uh, the default head coach if you like um, and you and became then, first assistant and I became the first assistant and then later on we were joined by um, God rest his soul Jimmy Rogers um, so we can get into that part of the story later but back and the following year I became the assistant coach also to the junior team at Crystal Palace under Roy Packham who's my good friend till this day, and a mentor of mine. Um, now, so to answer your question, obviously Roy was producing, you know, just a conveyor belt of, of talent from Crystal Palace. Um, Humph Long over in East London. Um, the folks over at Avenue, which I believe were in, I want to say North or North East London. I can't, I can't remember what, Leighton, okay. I think is where their home Stand base right. was. Lenny Hoy was the guy back then who was one of the drivers there. Um, yeah, and 
North London College, a little, or North the North London Club. Mm-hmm. They played at a college. A little bit, guys were coming out of there. Um, and then there was some schools. Jack Singer over at Clissold Park School, who I think was responsible for the Baker Twins. You know, um, Andrew Bailey came out of that, that area as well. I'm not sure if he went to Clissold Park. I think he did. Um, and, you know, there was a couple of other schools dotted around. But South London, East London, to a lesser extent North London, and then to a lesser extent still West London. It was in that order of, if you like, talent production. And for you personally, um, you never ended up getting focused on the juniors. Uh, on wanting to to coach the juniors, like what? Why is that? You know, something that people say to me is that they always felt that it's a shame that you didn't get involved with the juniors because you could have offered so much uh, in terms yeah. of developing players. And yeah. but it was very much a case of you wanted to be a professional coach. Uh, yeah. You wanted to coach professional senior men. Yeah. Um, why was that? You're absolutely right. Um, and people all through my career, when I had uh, gaps in my career, when I got fired, couldn't get another job. It's another story we'll get to, I suppose. Um, people always said, oh, you know, go back and coach juniors. You know, you're a great teacher of the game. You have a, a, a good affinity with kids, blah, blah, blah. Of course, as an ex-teacher, maybe that, you know, that was part of it. Um, although I got out of the teaching game, thank God, when I did. Uh, that that was never going to be my career path. I always wanted to be a, a, a coach at the senior men's level, as you alluded to. And... Um, Whilst I agree with those people's um, uh, description, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and still do to this day, interacting on the court with kids, because I know I can produce players and develop them, um, it never really turned me on as much as being at the big time of professional basketball. So consequently, I was working a, a parallel career, because I still did a lot of stuff for kids, um, obviously, in the teaching in West London, um, I built up basketball in a in my school, which had zero basketball. You know that changed after one week of me being the PE teacher. Um, and of course, then we went on and do great things. And I used to run camps and clinics throughout half terms and all the vacations. Um, so you know, massive involvement, uh, which went on actually throughout my career. But it was always, always secondary to me wanting to be and eventually being a head coach at the pro senior men's level. Um, And one of the things that uh, I guess I'm one of those guys that uh, I'm 100% committed to everything I do and I will, will never let, once I've committed, I won't let either those people down or that situation down. Um, Kids throughout my, even at school teams, you'd run a practice and there'd be four kids there. Because they got, the other seven or eight have got a myriad of excuses, all probably legit, but there's my practice decimated. It's driving me nuts. (laughs) And this would happen with all junior teams. So I'm like, nah, I'm not having this. Whereas the pros... It's their job. They're going to be there. They're going to be there, which means their commitment is akin to mine. And that's probably the answer to your question. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Um, (laughs) So uh, you got involved with Crystal Palace, um, became first assistant. Kind of what what happened from there? 
Right. A, um, obviously, we we still had a bunch of success in those, I was there four years. Um, and the, uh, the ability to be um, on the floor and exposed to that level of professionalism, even as a young assistant coach, you know, working my way up, I didn't really know too much at that time about coaching, even though I'd done a bit. And I was obviously teaching as well, which is, you know, teaching is coaching, coaching is teaching. I always, always say that. Um, but nevertheless, it's in the guise of a PE teacher at a school. It's not like now where you've got academies, guys are full-time yeah. basketball coaches. That never happened. So that experience for me uh, was the sort of touch paper to making me want everything and more. Consequently, um, I, I went to Danny Palmer um, and I said to we you know, sitting down, just shooting the breeze, coaching talk. But I said, Danny, I'd love it if you could give me a bit more responsibility at practice. He, he, you know, again, different coaches have different way of doing things. And I've, I've mentored and praised so many coaches over the years at all levels. And you see some coaches and they don't use their assistants at practice. The, the guys are just there. They showed up two hours and they've done this for two hours. Yeah. So immediately, even at a young age, I thought, you know, A, I didn't want to be that guy. And B, when I was a head coach, I wasn't going to have my assistants work like that. They were going to be working as coaches. So I went to Tanny and asked him for more responsibility. And to his credit, and I thank him to this day, because that helped me immensely, because you were able to go there and make the mistakes and learn from them and then go and seek knowledge. And he, he, gave, he gave me every night, you know, a few drills to do or I'd take the big guys down one end and, you know, Big Joe White, again, rest in peace. You know, he was one of my projects, if you like. Um, and, and I'd be working on the floor and becoming more and more involved. So... That was fantastic for me. Um, it also um, got me known a little bit more because what would happen then, as you went around the league to play games and everything, and uh, you know, guys would, would kind of get to know who you were and what you were doing. And uh, they'd obviously ask you, you know, how, you, how do you run your practices? And so you'd share this information. Um, also, we were in Europe at that time. We played a couple of the seasons in Europe. And uh, I'll never forget this one time. Danny got thrown out of a game. I forget, yeah, <laughs> I think, I forget what, uh, it was a French team. I'm up. And I'm like, I've never done any head coaching job at that level. And so talk about baptism of fire. But to his credit, what he would do then was maybe I shouldn't say this, but we were so dominant in some of the games, if we knew we were going to win a game by like 30 or 40, he'd let me coach. And Jimmy, by the way, did Jimmy, he did it with Jimmy as well. He'd let us be the head coach on the sheet, on the team sheet for the night. So that was great. Yeah. And it was it was intimidating because, you know, I'm coaching Alton Bird and Bob Romer, Dan Lloyd, Pete Jeremich, these guys, Paul Stimson. And to their credit, once Danny said, you know, your head coach tonight is going to be either Mark or Jimmy. And you were still a relatively young guy at this point. I was, well, only, right? I was younger than some of my players. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I was in my early, yeah. you know, um, early to mid twenties. Yeah, that's a challenging thing, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When I was kind of, I was in a management position at a job where I had a lot of staff that were older than me, and I was just yeah. like, I don't feel right about. It was a yeah, definitely a mental but um, challenge. What it did, it, it again further reinforced the fact that yeah, I want this and I can do it. Yeah. Um, and uh, also at that time was this fantastic. You probably heard, you know, through. I know you you've done a lot of uh, research, you know, through the time you've been running Hoops Fix. Um, and you, I've always told you you've done a great job. I appreciate that. Yeah, um, the WICB tournament, the Phillips yeah. tournament, which is a huge deal in this country. People talk about it to this day, and there, that was a, again a big eye opener, not only from the point of view of the standard of teams that came along to play, um, but also for me because it got me uh, a whole load of contacts, coaching contacts, um, globally which I then pursued to my advantage and for my own ends. Um, so, again, that was a, a, another part of my story, which... For, for people that haven't heard of WICB, um, give us a, a breakdown of kind of what it was and, you know, <laughs> why, is it, why it is still being talked about to this day. It was way ahead of its time and, the only, by the way, the only one of its kind in the world. And it was the brainchild of David Last. Um, he managed to secure um, a sponsorship from Philips Electronics, and it was big money at that time. Give me a figure. Well, <laughs> obviously, I ended up being on the management team for the WICB, and so you know I had a lot of insights. We're talking about you know um, in the late seventies, early eighties, way into six figures as a sponsorship deal. Now, I don't know what that would equate to today, but, but yeah, easily seven yeah. figures. Wow. I mean, how else was he able to fly in with all expenses paid, Maccabi, uh, uh, um, athletes in action from, from the States, etc., uh, a Brazilian team, men and women. By the way, WICB, World Invitation Club Basketball Championships. So it was literally that, men's, women's, junior men. They'd all come, and everyone would be paid for. Like it would be the it would be the, the tournament top, that pays to bring in the all top the clubs. teams would all get paid right. for. The quote lesser teams would have to pay. Yeah, in the latter stages. Yeah, in the early stages, he was because there weren't as many teams. He was able to let like one of the local teams. You know, I remember Bracknell, for example, playing playing in it. You know, they were just down the road. They'd come for free. To make up numbers or whatever. Um, so how, how many teams were in it? Well, in the early days, I think he had about six or eight. And then it, it morphed into 10, 12. And every but, club would bring males, females and juniors. Right. Except when it started to get real big and the TV coverage, we were on BBC, you know, just like it was normal. That, that was one of their Christmas, New Year fixtures. Sold out every year? <sighs> Maxed out. In yeah. fact, they were almost literally hanging off the rafters. And I've got a story about that, if you want to know. Yeah, go for you know it. It's a, you know it's a cl bit of a cliche. Oh, they're hanging off the rafters. Well, they literally were <laughs> in the cricket school, which was the downstairs gym at Crystal Palace, which was literally a cricket school. They had nets. You know the old cricket? Yeah, nets? yeah. But they turned it into a basketball court because we needed so many courts for this tournament. And it was a low-hanging gym because, you know, they didn't use it for basketball, so the ceiling was low. And we played, the junior uh, Crystal Palace team, played the Maccabi 
junior team, which were, if they had the EuroLeague nat- uh, junior championships like they have now in those days, they'd be you know, one of the top two or three teams. Yeah. It was a big deal. We, we beat them. And they were the, the place was packed. Now, it wasn't a gym for spectators, so literally you'd, you'd go wherever you could get a, a place to stand. And we had kids literally hanging from beams and cross uh, things for the cricket nets on the rafters of wow. the ceiling. It was ridiculous. So what, how many years did it run for? I'm a bit blurred on this Roughly. because it ran... Definitely for six years. Okay. Now, whether it went on a couple of years and I wasn't involved, because after I left Crystal Palace in 85, I want to say, 84, um, I then maintained my contact because, here we go, you know, we're sort of getting into other parts of, I know you want to ask me about it later. Um, I started running a coaches clinic at the WICB tournament in the last couple of years I was involved. And then when I left, David last wanted to keep me involved. So I got involved, as I said to you, on the management team. So um, I continued to run the... uh, I came back. I think I was uh, uh, on my other two teams now at um, Brunel, Uxbridge, and then Bracknell. But I I come back to run the coaching clinic. And what we used to do was use the visiting... The coaches off the visiting teams. And some of them were yeah. you know, high-powered coaches. I mean, when you've got Dan Peterson coaching the Milan team, you know, who's a legend of Italian basketball, won multiple championships. Uh, when you've got him in your building, why not use him, you know, in our little room to run our coaches' clinic? So, you know, we got the guys in there and, you know, again, that got me started, if you like, on the whole idea of the coaches association and stuff like that. So it definitely ran for that amount of time and, you know, was a huge um, uh, gathering point. You've probably heard this from others for the whole of British basketball. People would come from everywhere and gather. And it was a fantastic time for referees. They'll t- I'm sure if you speak to some of the refs today, they'll tell you, what a great time they had because they were again exposed to high-level basketball and they were on the floor doing it and they were able to interact with all the coaches and everything and we had a massive party. Um, you know, there were some legendary stories from, from those. I'm sure other people could tell you more. But, um, yeah, it was a four-day gig between uh, Boxing Day and New Year's Day, kind of what we used to call dead time. People were... You know, around there was a lot of school teachers involved in the game of basketball at that time. They were all off at that time. People were kind of, you know, there weren't any national league games. They were wondering what to do. And David, to his credit, saw that as a perfect time to run this. And of course, teams around the world, their leagues were down as well at that time. Why not go to London, which was a draw in itself, for this great tournament, which had some unbelievable teams for you to compete against. So it wasn't, you know, just cupcake teams. Yeah. You know, teams wanted to come and play. So uh, from a business standpoint, obviously you've got Phillips putting in a bunch of money. Uh, it's on BBC and stuff. Was it a profitable, profitable enterprise uh, for the owners? Like, can you kind of give us some insight? Obviously, I'm assuming that's the motivation for doing it, right? Um, yeah, like, you know, in terms of money that's 
passing through the gate and whether it's, I don't know, whether merchandise, was, I don't know, I don't know, tell me, like the streams, like how did it all work? Yeah, well, again, there was, um, David was a shrewd businessman, I mean, he was an accountant by, by profession, um, and he was able to monetize this thing big time. As I said, eventually, the first couple of years, I guess like any of these things, you're probably going to struggle a little bit, um, but it, how he was able to fly these teams in, all expenses paid, that tells you there must have been good profits. And the concession stands were there selling merchandise. And again, think about it, there wasn't very many places where you could buy basketball gear. So that, again, was a place where people knew if you go to the, the Phillips, as we used to call it, then they stopped their sponsorship. It just became the WICB. Um, you know, you could buy this, that, and the next thing in between games. Um, and there was, you know, food stalls and stuff like that, which I guess all fed into the the, the revenue. Do you, um, do you think a concept like that could work today? Pardon? Do you think a concept like that could, could work today? Like if someone was to come and do try and do the same thing now? I don't see why not. Although, I guess the costs... Yeah, you need big be, money up front, right? Would be, hu- yeah, hugely restrictive. You need the big money up front. You do do you think people would come out, like, to watch? Because I feel like culturally it's always, it's like, I mean, that's when I look back at the history of the game, it's, it's always fascinating. The, the stands are always full, you know. And uh, and then I think back in recent years, aside from the NBA, which, you know, is the NBA, yeah. uh, when it comes to London, when the EuroLeague came here to do the Final Four in 2012, um, you know, they originally had a two-year deal and they dropped it to one in large part because it was just a disaster for them in yeah. terms of, one, um, getting bums on seats, but two, actually getting media coverage from the right. from the national press. Right. Uh why? Why do you think if it like that has changed? Like, what has changed? I think, um, and you've probably heard this from others, the the direction from the top, the powers that be, the governing body, call it what you like, the influencers, um, was never there. Um, I mean, in my thirty five plus years, from having seen the Halcyon days and being involved with the first ever. Channel 4 live TV game, um, which was, meant for many, the watershed of, oh, now this the is sport the is... Yeah, this is the moment, exactly. But unfortunately, if there's only ever one big moment in a, in, a, in, a, in a lifespan of something like that, we've probably had about three or four. I keep hearing, this is the moment. And it's never really happened. And people like me, veteran, jaded veterans, who were in it at the, at the start, and who saw BBC's coverage. You know, um, I've even got footage of me on the BBC because they, they came and uh, filmed my team talk to my team at the, at, the, at the WICB. You know, so they had this, there was a buzz. They were excited to have it. And basketball, i.e. the governance, never seized properly on these opportunities. Now, I'm not a PR guy or a marketing guy. So what I mean by that, in a, in a way, I don't really know how to articulate. What does it mean to have seized the opportunities? I don't know. But all I do know is we didn't do it as a sport. And we missed various opportunities to make a big bang in the media. Um, and I remember... Going to, I was involved, obviously became involved later on with England basketball and London basketball, mainly on the coaching committees. 
Um, but that afforded me to go to various conferences as basketball's representative. I remember going to uh, uh, an IOC conference. So we've got all the Olympic sports represented. And I'm talking to various people. And uh, we're at a table having lunch. And I've got the uh, head of volleyball, UK volleyball, sitting there. The head of netball there, hockey. And they know I'm from basketball. And I remember to this day, because you're talk, I know, you know, we're talking about this particular topic. They said to me, because we were on TV at that time, every week. We, they said we would kill to be in your shoes, i.e. basketball shoes. How can we, because they were all clambering for TV coverage, as was Squash, by the way. Weirdly, I got involved with that a little bit. And they too would say to me, because of course Squash is not a made-for-TV game, whereas volleyball, uh, netball thought they were, and it's like, why are you guys suddenly on there with all this fantastic opportunity? But then the following year, when we blew it with Channel 4, I went to a similar conference and they're like, how come you guys blew it? And I'm like, here we go. So what happened with Channel 4 and then? Why did it end? Well, I think what happened... This is my knowledge of yeah. the situation. I know nothing, so... Right, well... <laughs> by the way, I was involved in the first ever game and there's a little... There's a it, game, the game winner. There was a game winner in that the, game, right? Well, yeah. yeah, and then it went to overtime. Okay. Uh, there's a little backstory to that, right. which you might be interested in. Um, but, you know, you can ask me if you want. Yeah. But the Channel 4 deal, what I, from what I know... Um, and what? just to give people context, the Channel 4 deal was the first time that basketball in this country had a regular broadcasting deal. It was on TV every week. Every week, one live game. They, they um, sometimes covered the whole game, but always covered the second half live. And was it prime time? Like... It, um, yeah, I believe yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, in, in a sort of evening slot. And was it a, a broadcasting deal in terms of Channel 4 were putting in substantial money into the game as part of the deal they were paying for the rights? Correct. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not like it was a happened deal. In, f- in subsequent years yeah. where we were paying TV companies <laughs> to put us on. I've never understood that. Yeah. You know, um, you're more savvy media than, media than I am, but what, how does that work? But anyway, you asked me... What, what happened, happened, yeah, how did yeah, you blow it? From what I understand at the time, they were happy with the product in the first year for obvious reasons. Um, but then they were trying to negotiate to cover all the teams in the league. Okay. And the governing body were saying, listen, you know, you really don't want to cover like the bottom two teams, it's going to be terrible for the product, blah, blah, blah. And from what I understand, there was a bit of a back and forth and they couldn't resolve it and they they pulled out. Oh. Yeah. And that, that left, that left when that happened, that left Basel without a TV deal at all? Did they go to someone else? No, they, they it left them without a TV deal. Oh, wow. And then came this, I'm not sure of the chronology, that there was that, I forget the name of it. It was an ITV NTL, the well, the one that went bust. That's the big that one. That was it. Yeah, but that was that was when that they were was, making the that, switch from Sky. Okay, that so was early. That was early two thousands. I didn't know which came first, the Sky deal. Yeah, or, yeah, um, yeah. So then it must have gone to Sky a few years later. Right. But they were still they were still trying to negotiate with BBC um, to have at least the main games on Cup final, Wembley playoffs. It used to be at Wembley in those days. Um, and you know they were they were hustling to try and do that, and I believe they did 
get a little bit of coverage. But the Channel 4 thing was awesome because it was the weekly coverage. We had our own show, our own slot, and we were starting to build a brand. Yeah. And of course, everybody knew because there was only four channels. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So everybody kind of knew it was there. And yeah. as I say, I got these questions by these other sports. Um, I think that was my uh, one of my final one or two years of teaching at school in West London. And, you know, of course, when we'd been on TV the, the following Monday, the kids would be all over you. Oh, oh sir, I saw you on TV. And <laughs> so, yeah, the buzz was there. Yeah. And like you say, that was the moment and we, we blew it. And then, as I say, over the subsequent 20, 25 years that I can attest to, there's been loads of these moments that we've blown. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Crystal Palace, you're, you're out for three, four years. Yeah. Why, why did you end up leaving? Well, basically, um, I had an opportunity to be a head coach and run my own team. Right. So, of course, Makes sense. well, you pay your dues as an assistant, and this is, uh, you know, something that... Now wearing my coach development um, and coach education hat, um, and I know you've spoken to uh, my good friend and brother from another mother, Tony Garbalotto, about this similar things, and he's of the same um, vision and, and um, has the same thoughts as me, whereas these days, guys are being, well, I say these days, over the last, in my observation, 10, 15 years, guys who are so-called head coaches in and around our game um, haven't paid their dues. You know, uh, I'm not saying there's there aren't different paths of making it, but back in, from what I know coming up, and all the people who are my contacts, a lot of college coaches in the States, those were, you know, where I built up a lot of co uh, contacts back in the day. You, you were an assistant or a... Coached at a lesser level, hence my local league stuff, yeah. college stuff. Then you coached as a head coach at a slightly lower level. I became the head coach of the juniors at Crystal Palace when Roy Packham left. Then you become a head coach at the big time if you can get a break. So that was how you paid your dues and came up. Now, that took what? We don't know. For some folks, it might take five, six, seven years. Others, it might be ten. You know, there's guys who are sitting up, uh, on NBA benches who have been assistants forever. And maybe they're lifers as assistant. A good friend of mine, Ron Adams, who's the assistant coach at the, at the Golden State Warriors, he doesn't want to be a head coach. I've known Ron for 32 years. He's been in, in the league for nearly that amount of time. He was a college coach before. He's been, you probably know, his name comes up with every year when head coaches' jobs in the NBA come up. He doesn't want to do it. So everybody's got a different path, but you've got to pay your dues. Otherwise, how do you learn? How do you know what you're doing? So I got my break um, at a Division Two team. There wasn't the BBL at that time. There was NBL Division One, which was the equivalent of the BBL, yeah. then D2. Brunel Uxbridge. And they played out of the uh, Brunel University. And they were in D2, and I became their head coach. Um, was that a full-time full paid gig? No. No, no. I, I was still teaching. I was still teaching. Okay. Uh -huh. um, and um, we got, we had a pretty good, pretty good year. 
We we won the cup, the national cup as it was back then. And was and, it the university team? No, it was part funded by the university. Yeah. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I had maybe one player from the from the student body. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. we had you know we had two Americans, and okay. again I was a by that time they were getting paid. Was I getting paid? The Americans getting paid. Oh yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. They were pros. And, you know, we put them up in accommodation, the usual gig. But how, even at Division 2, like, obviously for me, you know, I look at the game now, it's like, so you've got two Americans getting paid, you know, players, like, basically playing professionally in the second division uh, before the BBO even existed. Obviously, you had the NBO as the equivalent. Yeah. Um, like, who was funding that? How was that being funded? Was it just the owner of the club? Was it commercial revenues from tickets being sold to games? Like, how did the financial structure work? Sponsorship. Right. And, you know, probably a little bit of individual money. Um, the guy that owned the team at that point, well, it was part owned by the director of sport at the university, which gave us the little bit of, I presume they got the court for free or whatever. Yeah. You know, that sort of deal. And then another guy called John Kirkland, who who was the kind of part owner slash GM. Okay. He wasn't a rich man, so I don't know what was going on at that time. All I know is I was able to have two Americans a couple of guys who were on ex expenses who I brought in as, you know, kind of next level players. Yeah. Um, we had a pretty good team. I was just on expenses at that time, literally traveling expenses, but I lived fairly local. So yeah. it was great. Yeah. Um, and as I say, we, we, we actually won the league and got promoted. And we're just going into the top league in the country. To my horror, they had no ambitions. And they didn't want to go up because they thought it was a step too far in terms of finance um, and everything that the, the going into the top league would bring. And I'm like, you can't be serious. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened? Did well, you stay or did you leave? No, I didn't stay. And um, <laughs> the Because uh, that was your break. You, that's what you wanted the whole time is to be in the, be in the top league at the pro level and then yeah. they're just not doing it. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so... Um, don't move too far from the mic. Just oh, reminding you. Yeah. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't quite reconcile that because I'm like, okay, we've got a pretty good team here. We've just got promoted. Yeah. You know, surely we want bigger and better things. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, this is where I get a little bit blurred with the dates. Yeah. Um, because uh, let me just... So it must have been around this time because the BBL was set up in 86, right? So uh, if you left Crystal Palace in 84. Yeah. That would have been 84, so 85 84, season. Um, let's have a look so here. So it must have been... Uh, yeah, around that time. Um, it, it was around that time, and it was um, being spoken about because um, the National League was getting better, if yeah, you like. Yeah. They'd had um, a little bit of a TV and what have you, and um, there was some owners of teams in particular who, and of course, the league was run by the EBBA, which... You always used to drive me mad, that acronym, because basketball is one word. Yeah. <laughs> it's not two words. So that's how amateur they were at that time. And, of course, they were wanting, if you like, on PR, marketing, and that sort of thing. So the owners were like, we've got to break away and do our own thing because you guys aren't promoting 
the league, the team, and the potential of the game. I believe, it, yeah, I believe it was. It was also something to do. Do you know what? I have to send you. And I spoke about this on the on an episode the other day. Um, there's a guy who's just who's been working on his master's dissertation uh, yeah. about basketball funding, uh, all the way from the inception of the National League uh, through to the present day, and sort of the state of basketball in England. And it is the best piece of research I've read around basketball in this country in terms of well-researched, interviewed a lot of people, spoken to a lot of people, um, and it's given me so much context on things I have no idea about. Why? Uh, which I have to send you to, to read, because I think you'll find it interesting. But but one of the things he talks about is the, the formation of, uh, of the BBL. Okay. Um, and he spoke about, uh, there was actually discontent about the revenue split on, I can't remember, and he speaks about the sort of what the numbers were and the percentages and stuff. But ultimately, the clubs felt like they were getting a raw deal from the federation. The federation yes. was getting a lot for nothing. Yes. Um, so it was like, well, let's just do our own thing. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Well, uh, of course, when I, uh, I said I wouldn't mention the, the serendipity word again, <laughs> but I did mention a guy's name, Brian Naismith. Yeah. Um, and I'll come to him because you've, You've now brought up the the the, the uh, formation of the BBL, yeah. Um, and he was heavily involved, and therefore got me involved. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But I've just uh, had a quick yeah. look at the chronology. And when I left Brunel, um, it was then that I got approached by Jimmy Rogers to come and be the first head coach of this new team that they were starting in Brixton, and it was. The, with the uh, this social enterprise new type era. of deal, new era, yeah, and this was 1985, right? So, um, Jimmy obviously had known me from Crystal Palace, and because I made a, a quite a few references of the the whole London area linkage that we all seemed to enjoy and have at that time, everybody knew who I was. I knew everybody, so there was an affinity there already, and. I think Jimmy had seen, you know, and obviously we might have even played his previous teams. I mean, he was running some local league teams or whatever. So I'm sure we came into contact in that previous year when I had left Palace, he had left Palace, I was coaching at Brunel. So we had the contact and he, he kind of knew, oh, you know, you did a good job there, whatever. Would you be interested? So I said, yeah, obviously, um, you know, let me at it because I had nothing. This was another head coach's position. It was really exciting because it was something completely new and there was quite a lot of backing, both financially, um, which was important, obviously, of course. Um, and also uh, from the whole ethos that they were talking about with regards to the community and what they wanted to do. And I knew also that it was a hotbed for talent. In Brixton itself and in the South London area per se. So I knew that we could get some players and probably end up doing well. So that, that team, um, what, what division were they competing in? Well, that must have been, they were going to be going in to the Division 2 okay. as it was. Yes, because it was a new team. Yeah. And so how long, so the, yeah, at that point there wasn't a Division 3 or Division 4, it was just, you had just had Division 2 and, then, and Division 1. Yeah, then it was just regional stuff, I think. Right. Uh, not even regional. Local, I think te- right. teams were just in these local leagues. Yeah. Which, that's why they were so good. Yeah, yeah. Because the, 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 the next level of player only could play at a local league team. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's stories, like, when you obviously we've been working on this documentary over the summer, and uh, there was a team in... I think it was Hackney, which obviously Joe White was involved with, and 
somebody said that it was the best team that's never that never played national league, you know, and it had like the Baker Twins and um, just all these names on it that were just like how are all these people playing local right. league, you know, right, right. Uh, so yeah, it was definitely a, a different era. Yeah. Um, so how long did you stay with New Era? Right, <laughs> it's an interesting story. Uh, I won't. I don't want to go into some of the finer details, but I'll, I'll you know I'll give you a good insight into what happened. Yeah. But of course, the first thing to say is that. You know, one of the awesome things that happened was here comes the GOAT after his rookie season in the NBA, of Michael Jordan, to do that. Did the thing in Bristol. The launch of the, of the uh, uh, Jordan uh, footwear at the time and the, um, the kind of launch of our, our new club. Is that yeah? So I never knew why he was actually here. Right, he so was this here. was eighty five, right? Because there is, is some video, grainy video on YouTube that exists. Of, oh yeah, well of I've got I've yeah. got the whole footage of the day. Okay, uh, Vince Vince Razak, uh, Vince McCauley. Yeah, um, he filmed it. Right. Um, obviously, I as the head coach, I was responsible for running the clinic that was attached to this. You know, it was two days actually of of. You know, meet meet and greet all the PR stuff that Nike would do. Yeah. You know, etc. But I mean, I could give you. I mean, that could, that's another interview if you like. But um, yes, he came over. It was after his rookie year, and as you know, here come the red and black Air Jordan ones, as they are now known. Um, banned by the NBA, they wouldn't let him wear them. So I don't know how the link was forged. Um, which is a bit remiss of me because here come Nike and they want not only to sponsor our team with this gear but to bring Michael Jordan himself over to promote it, launch it, run a little clinic with our our uh, club and do that whole PR thing. So we were, we were blown away, obviously. But of course... We didn't really even know who Michael Jordan was. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Even though, by the way, I was at the 1982 Final Four when he hit the shot to win North Carolina the uh, the title. Yeah. So anyway, that's another story again. But um, so he comes in. I uh, We have to run a clinic for kids during the day. Uh, so I, I'm responsible for that. There's a whole you know buzz around the place. It was awesome. Uh, Michael comes in, he's like hands-on. He's working with all the kids, he's visiting, we had stations, he's visiting every station. It was fantastic. But the highlight of the day for me and us was that he scrimmages with my guys at our practice in the evening. It was awesome. You can imagine, and I can give you names of our players who were totally starstruck. But in fact... He brings um, members of his family and a couple of friends over, entourage, if you like, um, along with him for the trip. And his brother, Larry, who if you read the early books on, on Michael, um, he tell you Larry was a better player than he was. And I'm telling you, he was awesome in this scrimmage. So they both work out with, with our team. So here I am coaching Michael Jordan in drills in Brixton Rec. In 1985. Amazing. Crazy. Anyway, the other part of the story, of course, we are the only club and the only outfit in the world who have this Jordan gear. 
So the, was it a sponsorship of the club? Was it, of course it was. The, the only world anywhere in the world at that time. They subsequently signed a few more people yeah, of course. In, the, in the months, I think, towards the end of that season. But we were the, we were the OG, as they would say. <laughs> Now and you don't know how that link came about. Like why? No, like why I'm, of all the clubs in the world, why England? Know, why Brixton? I think I don't know if Jimmy had anything directly to do with it. I doubt it, and that's not casting any aspersions yeah, yeah. any. But I think Nike came to us because of the inner city thing, and the new new era is all about social the, responsibility it, exactly. and impact in the community, and, and it was kind of it fit with their remit, right. their urban type of deal they were just starting to get into that type of vibe at that time but i'm telling you if if i knew then what i know now i would have kept those shoes in boxes <laughs> yeah because how much are they going for now on ebay and places like that tens of thousands because everybody got one pair of the black and red and one pair of the red white and black crazy, crazy. and of course the team got all the gear the uniforms Warm-up suits, the, the, the lot. Yeah, amazing. It was amazing. Anyway, so the, the remainder of the story, unfortunately, um, and as I've learned since about this phrase, uh, in latter years, your, your sort of era of guys, <laughs> uh, perception is the new reality. You've heard that phrase. Yeah. Whereas back then, I wanted the reality to be the perception, and it wasn't. And cut a long short, I was made some promises um, which weren't kept, and there ended up being some disagreements, inevitably over money, um, and also though over playing staff, because I was promised two Americans, and they didn't, they didn't come. Right. So consequently, the. There was other things as well, but we had obviously great English players, but in order to compete, and again, I wanted us to get to the next level, you definitely needed your Americans contingent because all the other teams had them. So that was a bit of a problem, and we, um, I forget what our record was. We had a winning record. It wasn't great at that time, but I ended up leaving midway through the season because we couldn't come to... The agreement and um, Jimmy brought in Alton Bird as a consultant slash manager at that time, and Alton had his own ideas about the uh, the sort of the next route for this club. Um, anyway, it, it ended a little bit acrimoniously, and then I ended up leaving. So where did you go? Well, what happened next? So I'm in limbo again. Yeah. For the second time. Uh, my good friend uh, at the time, Coach Dave Titmus, had taken over at Uxbridge. He obviously heard I got fired, or well, actually, I left Brixton. Um, and he said, oh, why don't you come along? You're doing nothing. We can't waste you. Come along and be my assistant, which is what I did. So I ended up being his assistant, at Ux, back at Uxbridge yeah. uh, with his team at that time. So then by that point, we must be at the point of the BBL launching, uh, 86. Right, here we go. So 86 comes along, and this is when I get my big break. Okay. 
and I'll bring that name back into the conversation like I told you I would. Brian Naismith is the owner, if you want to call him that, of what was then the Guildford Pirates, which became the Bracknell Tigers, which became the Thames Valley Tigers, and then moved to Guildford, and they're now no more. He had started, with, along with some other folks, to get this BBL going. So he'd had a series of meetings by then. Uh, there were stacks of paper already like this. And he approached me because he, obviously we'd made the link way back when I was at school yeah. and had played his University of Surrey teams. And he kept, I kept in touch with him over the years. Plus, he had started the fledgling Basketball Coaches Association of England, BCAE. And of course, because I had already started to run these coaches' clinics at the WICB, like I mentioned to you, yeah. I was in touch with Brian on matters coaching, matters basketball. So we had a little link. He said, I know, how, I know what you can do. I want you to be the next head coach of my team. I'm like, this is what I've been waiting for. Because they're in the top league, I'm there. And that's and this is a and was this a full time job now where you could leave no, teaching? Still not. No, this okay. is part time. So I I was still living in West London, teaching at uh, in Hounslow in West London. Yeah, and uh, I was driving five, eight times a week to and from Bracknell, and of course all the games all around the country. So uh, that first year of the BBL, how, how many teams were? Well, in the- it wasn't quite the BBL because. That was still National League. And when I got to Bracknell, yeah. Brian, uh, I was kind of, because I was the head coach, um, he kind of involved me, started to get me involved. And I went to actual some of these meetings where it was still being formulated and all the articles of association and all the legal stuff was being formulated at that time. And it was during the course of that season, that first season I was there, that they... You know, formulated it in a in a in a you know in the professional sense right, okay. and in the legal sense, and it, and then it became it got launched. And that was the and so that so then by the next season was when it was launched. Eighty six. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. And yeah, like, what was that first year like? What are your memories of the first year? You know, your not only your own personal experiences, but like the league as a whole for people that weren't around uh, to see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do, do you remember? Like, I don't even know how many teams were involved uh, that first year, um, and kind of what the state of play was. Yeah. Um, I want to say there was ten teams. Okay. That seems to ring a bell. Yeah. And of course, it was. Now you've got teams all over the country, um, and the standard was was really good. I had to up my game. Now by this time, you know. Um, I know you want to go on and talk about the, the sort of the coaching aspect. Yeah, I would of, love to. Of, yeah. of, of, but you know what you've got to understand when I mentioned the phrase "paying your dues." By that time, I'd spent most of the preceding years going twice every year to the United States. I went to I went to nine Final Fours in a row, uh, and by the way, I took again, God rest his soul, Jimmy Rogers to his first ever Final Four. And he, so he ended up going for the, the next 25. Yeah, yeah. I, I went to the next 11, so he beat me on that. But of course, along with the, obviously watching the games, there was the massive NABC, National Association of Basketball Coaches, convention, 
which was the huge coaches clinic. So, of course, we're there every single minute of every clinic. Also, every summer, I'm working camps all around the United States. I'm building up a huge network of friends, coaches, and acquaintances around the game, some of whom are my friends to this very day. So, you know, 30, 40 years worth of friendships forged from going over there, learning and expanding my knowledge to be a better coach. That's all, that's my whole motivation. So by this time, um, I had built up what I, well, quite a bit of knowledge, which was going to be expanded. Obviously, you never stop learning. But I'd already arrived at how I wanted to coach and how I wanted to coach the game and how I wanted to coach players and develop them. So I had some idea of what I was doing, even at that first stage of what you'd call the big time now. Um, so the focus was was on, you know, because um, we were an okay team. We were middle of the pack in the first couple of years and then, of course, got really good. Um, when John Knight came in to own the team, who was a multi-millionaire, budget went up, get better players. The formula isn't that big of a deal to understand. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was great. The, the standard was, was pretty good. You obviously, you know, the Manchester team now, uh, Coventry as they were, which became Team Fiat. Um, you know, then they moved to Birmingham. Um, there was, so there was a lot of good teams. Solent down on the south coast, some strong teams around Sunderland. I wanted to, you know, speaking of the sort of the education side of things and you know, yeah. you've spoken about you wanted to just absorb knowledge all the time and stuff. Obviously nowadays there is the internet. It's very easy to find videos of clinics so you don't have to go in person. Yeah. I'm sure there are probably numerous online courses and uh, just all this stuff. There's so many opportunities for a young coach if they want to, uh, to seek that information. Obviously, back in those days, it was a little bit different. Um, for any coaches, kind of aspiring coaches, was the only way of, of absorbing knowledge, either going physically to these clinics, working camps, working underneath another coach where you've got to pay your dues, like kind of, you know... If, <clears throat> If you were a young coach in those days coming up, like what was the sort of general formula for uh, well for their own professional development essentially? Yeah, yeah. I mean you've you've alluded to it there. Um, that, that's a that's a good description because you had to and I, I what I used to do again around this time in those preceding years to get in this job, you know I'd I'd already uh, as I say been over the final four, started networking. Um, I got I went I would go up to the head of the NABC, I remember his name to this day, Joe Van Sizen, and say, you know, because there was so few international coaches attending these things. You were funding out of your own back pocket, I assume. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, listen, I was lucky, uh, I don't mind saying, uh, again, these things along the, your, your life's journey sometimes fall in your lap. My father worked on the airlines, so he had a lot of contacts in a lot of the other airlines. I used to get free tickets. Right. Round trip tickets. Amazing. Now, I was on standby. That was the only negative. Yeah. <laughs> but I never got bumped. I think once I got bumped in the sort of eight or nine years that I'd gone biannually stateside. So it, it didn't really used to cost me anything. Right. Some some hotel accommodation, food on the road in the in the States, 
and a, and a, and a rental car. Yeah. And don't forget, I was a full-time teacher, so I had a salary. No problem. Yeah. But I was also able to go up to Joe and say, you know, who I am, what have you. How can you help me over there in England? We got nothing. So, but he started sending me books and I started getting um, some addresses of places in the States, because you couldn't get them here, that would sell technical coaching books. I started, you pay, obviously, again, paying for the postage, getting them sent over. So I, I started getting magazines, books, learning that way, and, of course, attending every clinic I could in the States. Um, there weren't very many clinics here. There were a few. I remember going um, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, Hubie Brown came over here. Nobody knew who he was. Joe B. Hall, the legend Kentucky coach, came over here. Dean Smith. And invariably, they were in London, because you know, that's where they were going to be, in some dark gym in the middle of town somewhere. And there'd be like 15 of us yeah. attending a clinic with these legends of the game. But you had to go if you were me. Yeah. And junkies like me. So you're right. You did all those things. You hustled. Get information from wherever you could. I said to you, I made contacts through the WICB. One year, there was a Belgian team. This is a quick one. The coaches on the Belgian team also happened to run their coaches association in Belgium. Boop. Made the connection. We started their exchange information. They'd send me their monthly coach's newsletter it was in Flemish well I so I through my teaching contacts got somebody to translate it and I'd in turn started to produce my own newsletter on my and old teachers will remember this we had a Ronio machine in school that you had to do it by hand like this but I started to produce my own and I'd send it to Belgium by the way, that was duplicated in various countries. I'm just giving you a quick example. Because you asked me, how would you, yeah. you know, get better? How yeah. would you get your information, your, 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 your technical knowledge? So, yeah, I was hustling to get all this. Plus, you work under better coaches, which doesn't ha seem to happen anymore. These, guys, these younger guys I see, and Tony G would say the same thing, they haven't paid their dues because they haven't done any of this. So how are you going to learn by looking at the YouTube and looking at a drill and say, oh, yeah, that looks good. Let me take that. You don't know how to teach yeah. within the drill, yeah. which is you know another thing we might get into. I don't know. Um, but if you're on the floor with a more senior coach, like I was with Danny Palmer, Roy Packham and others, I was very lucky, plus... The guys I was being um, exposed to in the States when I worked camps, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll drop this in there. And again, this was, you know, just by accident, I got to a camp in Santa Barbara, Southern California, called Snow Valley Basketball Camp. At the time, it was one of the best teaching camps in the United States, acknowledged throughout the coaching fraternity as being that. And the owners of that camp, I again, they're friends of mine to this day. Um, it's been running for over 50 years. Um, and um, 
the coaches they would get on their staff were high school coaches and small college coaches. They were some of the best teachers in the United States, including big time NCAA college coaches and NBA. And that's where I learned most of my basketball drills, philosophy, methodology, which I still use to this day. So that was some of the most valuable time I've ever spent and gave me 75% of my knowledge and acumen as a coach, which I brought back, obviously, and put on the floor here, whether it be with my pro teams, whether it be when I was running camps and clinics for kids, and eventually when I ran and tutored hundreds of uh, uh, coaching award courses and coaches camps, which I did with the BCA. So you're absolutely right in saying there's just no substitute for gaining that type of experience. You know, I did say to you before, one of the things I would love to talk about is the uh, is the BCA and yeah. the Basketball Coach Association and yeah. kind of your, your early involvement in that. So, um, yeah, how, how did that first come about? What sort of year was it? Right. What was going on? What was the kind of backstory? Carry on talking because I'm just going to check one of the cameras. Keep okay. going. Now, the backstory is, again, I'll uh, refer you to Brian Naismith, as we've mentioned. And he, when I got to... Uh, uh, Bracknell, um, he got me involved um, with not only the, the team and the BBL, like I mentioned earlier, but with the, uh, the Coaches Association, which he had already started. But it was small, he couldn't do it on his own, and I was all gung-ho to do something like that. So I got involved at that time, and as I said, it was the, known as the BCAE. And Brian, together with myself started to really get going with it in terms of now producing a, uh, a, a what was a quarterly newsletter, which I used to do at the Refrographics uh, um, Department of School. Um, and we, we started uh, getting coaches because, of course, by, between us, we knew everybody and we knew coaches all around the country. So we started to say, look, we want to make this a, a, a real deal would you become a member? And uh, in those days, we asked them for you know some nominal payment, five pounds or whatever. And uh, you know we had T-shirts made up, and they get their quarterly newsletter for free. And we started running coaches clinics. So um, and the federation wasn't doing anything. Well, you say that they weren't really doing anything in terms of clinics and stuff. Uh, so I approached them, uh, you know, with Brian and said, look, you know, with your blessing. Can, this is what we'd like to do. Can we go ahead and do it? We said, we, you know, we'll involve you because you're the governing body and we need your sort of, we need to be affiliated in some way um, and have your name on our publications. And if we run a, a clinic, you know, we, we'll have you as, as you know, the, the, the sort of partner, if you like. But we, we ended up running stuff. So uh, I'll give you a quick example. In the early days of running clinics, um, we, we made an agreement with... Uh, um, whatever they were called at that time <laughs> England basketball I'll yeah. call them um, at the cup final and at the playoffs we'd have a closures clinic every year and they were happy with that so I, I would organise it I'd get the speakers we'd run it in, a, in, a, in one of the classrooms you know um, uh, whatever venue we were at be it Birm the, you know, NEC at Birmingham uh, we actually had one of our cup finals believe it or not at the Royal Albert Hall did you know that? Yeah. So we ran a clinic there. 
in one of the, uh, I presume was maybe where the violinists <laughs> practiced. Uh, but yeah, so those were the early days of the BCA. What sort of and year are we talking about? 86. 86, okay. Yeah. And then by, um, as the years went on, I just kept it going. Brian, Brian's involvement in the game kind of fizzled out. Um, he sold the club to John Nike, and then his involvement started taking a, a real backseat. He'd come to the odd game. Uh, he was director of sport at the University of Surrey, so he was busy there. And um, because I, I kind of got the bit between my teeth with the coach education and development, by that time I was involved with the governing body as well on their coaching committee, and you know they saw me as kind of one of the main guys, if you like, to to lead on stuff. Yeah. I'd already run some clinics. I was producing documents and, and these newsletters. So Brian basically left it to me, and I ran with it. And, uh, you know, then we, we took off. Uh, we changed the name. I got John Collins involved at an early stage because he was, you know, also – not only interested in doing that stuff, but was already doing a little bit of it. Um, and we we then got some other guys involved um, along the way. Betty Cadona came in later, um, and some other some other people. And then it, it became um, well reasonably big in terms of we couldn't understand why we were seemed to be the only country of the leading basketball nations without a proper coaches association. So that was one of the motivators for me. I'm like, I'm going to change this. Because yeah. I was in touch with a lot of these guys. You know, I, I knew the guy who ran the Italian Coaches Association. I knew the guy who ran the former Yugoslavian Coaches Association. And I'm, they're like, you know, what are you guys doing? In the early days, it was, oh, not much. And then I thought, you know what? Let me try and make this bigger. So I went out, tried to get some sponsorship to make things happen on a bigger scale. Um, our publication became a lot more sort of glossy. And of course, this was pre-internet. Uh, we eventually went online. Um, and we started doing things a little bit bigger and better. And now I thought, right, our clinics, we need to um, uh, attract some bigger name speakers to attract more people which we eventually did. And, you know, when you get the likes of uh, Joanne Plaza, who was coaching Real Madrid at the time, Sergio Scariolo, who was, you know, is now the Spanish national team coach, and he, he's an assistant with the Toronto Raptors, which is weird to me. But, you know, so we had some big names come through our clinic program, and consequently our clinics were starting to be really well attended. I mean, we... You know, to back in those days to get fifty coaches to a coaches clinic anywhere in, in the in the country. And by the way, we wouldn't only we'd run them all over the place. Um, so we always try to get the sort of north, midlands, south type of deal because our northern friends would moan about having to come to London. So I thought, all right, I'll bring the clinics to you. So we'd always get. Uh, that sort of program going and uh, Laszlo Nemeth uh, when he was the national team coach he would be my travelling clinician 
So I take him to Manchester, then we drive to Birmingham, and then we come and do one in London and maybe in Southampton. And, uh, you know, Laszlo would be on the road with me, and he'd be the featured clinician. But, you know, we ended up having uh, uh, attendances of over 100 coaches, wherever we were. And we took over uh, the governing body's national conference, which they, by their articles, I think, were mandated to do, along with the refereeing conference. Um, so for a few years, we ran them side by side, which was interesting, because then the coaches could interact with the refs, which made for some very interesting lunchtime conversations and dinners. But it was great on a, on a more serious note, because that helped promote and develop both strands, important strands of our game. And, um, then, you know, then we got a, a great sponsorship by Nike. Uh, Richard Stokes was working for him at that time. He had a vested interest in being, a, you know, one of the top referees, not only in this country, but ended up being one of the top refs in Europe. So he helped us in all sorts of ways with, with, the, with a, a Nike sponsorship deal for the Coaches Association, which then helped us do all sorts of other things in terms of, you know, the promotion of the clinics and being able to, you know, get bigger names, more of them. And of course, we could give freebies on the door, which attracted more coaches to come to our clinics. That's a bit of an overview. What, um, how, what number did your membership peak at? It peaked at about uh, 250. Okay. And there were people paying an annual fee well, to be a that, that's, this is a bit of a contentious issue, actually. Right. I, w- I was, um, uh, along with John and one other person, we were kind of the three head honchos, if you like, of the association. We, we made it run. And John and I, actually, um, were responsible for the clinics and also for our annual summer residential coaches camp, which ran for 12 years, and we would offer the Level 3 National Governing Body Coaching Award at that week. I mean, we, we used to have a blast, and the names that went through those camps, you know, some of whom are, are coaching in predominant positions now, national team coaches, etc. Anyway, um, so... We were running things and we were, uh, obviously, it was costing us to, to run various things. And I was adamant that we should have membership for free because coaches in our country traditionally weren't really paid. So you had all these great people around the country, activists, let's call them, who were doing great things for our game. And they were putting their own money in, especially with kids' teams. And by the way, I paid my dues with that as well. You know, having uh, uh, put money myself in, which you'll never recoup. But, you you know, so what? Yeah. You do it for the love of the game yeah. and to help kids. Um, I ruined three cars, you know, from transporting more players than should be in there yeah. to games and practices. You know, coaches around the country have got these these stories you know, uh, war stories. The old old timers like Joe Former, Mike Burton, um, Humph, rest in peace. You know, they, they all did that back in the day. But um, I thought, you know, we're burdening coaches with, you know, paying a, their dues to an association. What do we really give them? It wasn't like we were in Spain 
who offered insurance to their coaches, plus places like Holland where it, and France where it was mandatory to be a member of the Coaches Association because you couldn't get your coaching license to be a coach unless you were and you had to attend two clinics a year mandatory. I try to put this in our country because I'm like, if Holland can do it and France can do it, why, could, why can't we? Plus, it would make the whole thing more professional. Our governing body didn't want to do it. Again, another story for you if you want later on. Drove me nuts uh, because I was trying to professionalize things and I was, you know, fight, seeing this along the way. So that's why we broke away eventually from the governing body and as a coaches association. So many coaches uh, towards when we did break away were saying to us, you know, because they knew what the scene was in other countries as well. Oh, you know, what we we need to you need to, uh, the, the BCA to be our union and have all the ramifications that a union bring a proper union. And like, is that really going to work here? You know, we haven't really got what well, we got like 10 professional coaches in the country, you know, i.e. professional with a big P mm. being paid. And that's their job. Yeah. That's their, and that's their salary to put bread on their table. So anyway, uh, the, the other, we took it to the committee as you do in a great democracy. And, um, it, it was, it was passed that actually there should be a, a, a fee. So we ended up charging them a fee uh, 20 pounds, I think. And uh, yeah, that's how we progressed. But um, we, I, I think a lot of people had uh, a lot of good things to say about the BCA in those days. Mm. Um, and then inevitably, I suppose, it kind of fizzled out. A little yeah, bit. I was going to ask that. And, I mean, why did you, it stop? It sounds so positive. You know? this, is, this is where you and I, yeah. our paths first crossed yeah. a, a few years ago yeah. when we tried to re-resurrect it. Yeah. Anyway. I don't think, yeah, I don't think that, that is uh, completely dead. Um, no. there's, again, there's been more talk about it recently in, in recent weeks, but right. it's definitely something that, I spe- you know, even listening to you now and having this conversation, I'm like, there's, there is a, no reason why a you know, coach association should not exist. Um, Agreed. And it's something that should be should be there. Something that uh, yeah. that needs to be there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at that point, yeah, those conversations. It's yeah, it's one of the. I just, there's so many projects that I have uh, juggling everything, and then you know, obviously Lloyd was involved, and right. um, but there is talk now of. I mean, recently in in recent weeks of trying to trying to sort it out and actually get it done. Um, and yeah. I, you know, obviously I said I'd support on the digital side of things and um, digitizing the tapes that you've got and yeah, and yeah. all of that because there's yeah. there's so much archive there but it's yeah. definitely something that I feel well, we were we were well respected in what we were doing and as yeah. I say we produced um, the clinics were fantastic because that's coach education and uh, of course in the ensuing years the internet then kicked in yeah. and um, the dissemination of information you know was going to be inevitably more online yeah uh, and you had the ability to get it from from everywhere in the world our role you know took on a, a slightly different thing i think there was still a place for clinics i.e you know come along to yeah, a yeah. gym and listen to a guy who is big time and you might learn some things but i i don't know uh as that progressed we saw we saw the numbers going down and it was it was less viable because you have to rent a facility yeah. and 
pay folks to come along to speak. And yeah. it was like, you know what? This financially, this isn't really working anymore. How were how you funding? Like, how are you flying in guys from overseas to come? Well, we were stuff? able, as I said, uh, you know, when we had the Nike sponsorship, for example, they helped right. with things like that. Yeah. Uh, plus, we piggyback on a couple of things. I'll give you a quick example. We piggyback, for example, on uh, Jack Majewski's um, Future Stars Future Stars tournament. Right. So he was getting some sponsorship. He had some finances available in the pot. And um, we ran some coaches clinics, which we, a couple of years, <clears throat> put under the guise of the national conference. So EB were happy that it was going ahead. Yeah. Plus, I was able to manufacture a situation where, because it was at, at Jack's tournament, we, we were able to, you know, he, he'd pay for a guy to come in. Right, perfect. So we were able to get a couple of speakers, um to come in and speak on our clinic, they'd be, uh, I remember, I'll give you a quick anecdote. I know you like the stories. Um, Sergio Scariolo was there one year um, with actually a guy called Nevin Spejia, who is a big-time EuroLeague coach. He was also the assistant at the Atlanta Hawks for two or three years. Um, again, these are all guys I kept in touch with because you know my MO now. I, I latch on to these guys. You know, and I, because they they can help me along the way, um, so he came along, um, and it was it was the uh, uh, time of Wimbledon because Jack's tournament were always run around that time, and um, he he obviously wanted to go to the games of Wimbledon, and this was a perfect opportunity. So we killed like four birds with one stone getting him over, and um, you know it, 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 those were the types of things we. You just hustle. Yeah. Hustle to try and make things uh, work well um, as best you can. For what? For the benefit of coaches who wanted to come along to improve. Yeah. That was it. That's my sole purpose in life with the BCA hat on. Yeah. And I think I achieved, you know, quite a lot of things. And a lot of people came through, as I say, our camps and clinics, um, even if it was some... So, I mean, I was available as, as like an agony on as well. I, I'd say to coaches, you know, younger guys or older guys, um, call me if you need any advice on anything. Uh, John Collins was the same, by the way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'd get a few calls every now and again. There's strength, the strength in having that network. Yeah, shoot sure. the breeze, uh, yeah. help on a drill. Yeah. You're having a problem with a player. How do you deal with it, coach? You know, this, that. Yeah, I remember like when I when I first sort of came on the scene of Hoops Fix, I remember going on the BCA website, um, and you obviously had a lot of coach contributions for articles. Uh, people would send in their own thoughts around certain things. Exactly. Um, and I used to find it interesting just to just to read. Uh, there's obviously yeah. a fair bit of ranty stuff as well, and yeah. complaints about various different things that were going on. Um, what what year did it finally wind down? That's a good question. Um, I think in the mid two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little later. Okay. Yeah, two thousand. I want to say. Yeah, two thousand and seven, eight, maybe. Okay. Yeah. I don't know why that. Uh, years coming into my head. I got it's kind of vague, yeah, a little yeah. bit vague to me that, but uh, I could go back and yeah, yeah, and find That's out, fine. but. Um, yeah, and uh, as I say, it started from, uh, again, that, uh, you know, just almost by accident. I happened yeah. to be in the right place 
at that time with Brian Naismith and yeah. yeah it happened um, I'm aware of time because I don't really want to go over two hours we're at 145 at the moment uh, if, that's what I said time it, flies it, when you're having fun it, so. it flies um, but yeah there's, a, there's a, obviously a, a few other bits that um, would be interesting for, for me to cover uh, I mean starting with kind of like now you're completely checked out and you're, you're not really involved with basketball which no. clearly you know from the, from the conversation we've had over the last hour and 45 minutes you're very passionate about it still and you still love the game Um but you're no longer involved. So, so, so why is that? Clearly, you, there's so much value that the game could have from you if you were still involved. Um, why aren't you? Well, you, you know, you asked me sort of back. You know, we 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 ended my little potted history uh, at Bracknell when I was yeah. still a teacher. Yeah. Well, in 1986-7, it gave me the opportunity at Bracknell to become the full-time head coach slash GM. And that's when I quit teaching and became a professional basketball coach as a career. And dream achieved. Pardon? Dream achieved. That's, yeah, that's dream, the, that was yeah, it. Yeah. So I achieved the goal yeah. right there. And of course, um, since then, I've never had another quote-unquote job. And I've been full-time ever since. So along the way, I've had several clubs, as you, as you know, and some people watching and listening to this know, um, and... You know, I've had some successes, some failures, and I've been fired um, or resigned from, unfortunately, I think about three different situations, um, which, you know, we could go over maybe in a, you know, part, yeah, we'll part def- two. We we'll definitely have to do a part yeah, two. Yeah, we have to do a part two or maybe even three. Yeah. But um, suffice to say, even with all that going on, um, my love of the game, my passion for the game and, you know, to quote a, a phrase that people use, being a lifer has never diminished and nor will it. It will go to my grave. Um, now, I have still continued to be involved, um, even when I haven't had one of the so-called, you know, big time BBL professional jobs. Um, for example, I was coaching at an academy. Uh, with John Collins up in Northamptonshire for a few years, so I did that. Um, I've always been involved in coach education and development because that's one of my other loves, apart from being on the floor coaching players and teams. Um, and you know, uh, I sort of get goosebumps even today thinking about the number of coaches who I can see on sidelines at various parts of the country now who. I've helped, basically. I don't want to say I'm their mentor or anything, but certainly helped either through being their tutor on a course or mentoring them post-course or giving them an opportunity or guiding them in a certain way. Um, you know, uh, there's a couple of coaches who have gone abroad to learn their craft and I've helped them to do that. And they've come back and been successful coaches here and thanked me for that opportunity. So... Those things give me goosebumps till today, and I'm I'm happy to have done that, and I would, I still do it today. So um, even though I'm not coaching, and it, you know people have always who meet me um, and know me from old say, you know it's an absolute travesty and what have you. I'll leave that for others to comment on. All I know is this that, and again, I have to unfortunately go back to the governing body and the governance of our sport. Um, they historically 
have not used, and I would say have even almost spat on, the expertise and knowledge that's available in the country if a person or certain individuals didn't fit in for some whatever reason with the with the status quo or the zeitgeist at the time and I'm one of those guys how can you have and I'm not blowing my own trumpet here how can you have a guy like me who's got a lot of knowledge and experience proven has an unbelievable passion for the game, unmatched and unrivaled. I'll go toe-to-toe with anybody in the country on that. And then, by the way, there's a lot of us with that sort of passion um, who's still got a lot to give. Thank God I've got my health. Um, you know, I'm an old guy, but I, I can still get out there and, and, you know, demonstrate and, you know, get rah-rah with the kids and everything because I'm passionate. When I cross the lines, you know, that's me. That's my domain. That's my church. That's my cathedral. How can you leave a guy like me untapped and unused? I'm willing to do everything, anything and everything to help our game in this country. And boy, does it need help. And yet, nobody contacts you. And again, I know some old timers in various countries in Europe and in the States. Not so much in the States because their structure is just so vast and huge and you got a million other coaches who, who can do things. But in some of the European countries, certainly some of the smaller ones, they recognise they need all the help they can get from their old-time guys. And they, they bring them in. They use them. You might not get the job, but they'll certainly have you consulting, for example, on one of the national teams. You hear this all the time in Spain and France and places like this. And, yeah, I have to say to those guys... We're in England. You know, that's my, that's my, you know, my refrain, and I get deflated like this every time I have to say it. Um, oh, you know, they just don't do that here. They don't know to do that. And it really depresses me, Sam. Have you tried to go to them? Yes, with a whole bunch of ideas. And in fact, even as recent as yesterday... Um, you know, Tony G is is my sort of protege. He won't mind me saying that. He considers me a mentor, and we speak all the time. And he is passionately involved about this area of our game as well. So we still talk, and it's that subject about ideas that either he's still going to the governing body with today in 2018 that I went to them with the same idea. 25 years ago, it's flabbergasting to me that these ideas, whether they've come from me or somebody else, and I'm not unique, I'm not saying it's only me, there's been others who I could name, and the governing body don't want to know. And we can't understand why. I'll give you a quick example, and this is contemporary. You know, they've produced yet another glossy document which I've seen regurgitated now about what five times in the last 25 years I'm sick and tired of these documents coming out that mean nothing and yet they try and implement them and nothing changes nothing gets better the you know the quality of coaching is still not as let me just put it like this not as good as it could and should be 
the quality of players we produce is not as good as it could or should be. And what's happened with all your player pathway development plans and all these glossy brochures you produced along the way? They haven't contributed to making things any better. Yet, when I come with you to, with an example from, say, how the Australians did it, that we could replicate over here, and I'm willing to do it for you, and they don't even get back to you, I rest my case. Because nothing, nothing ever happens. So let's say that uh, you were given a position with Barcelona England to be the head of coach development um, and improving the game in this country. Uh, I know this is obviously give us the brief overview because you could this could be a very long answer. <laughs> um, where would you start? Like, what what do you see uh, looking in that should be the priorities when you're talking about? Developing coaches. I feel like a lot of people I speak to when they talk about the things that I hold about the game, we obviously get a lot of the obvious stuff, but it seems like if we had a lot more higher quality coaches, it would go a long way in improving everything because we then have a lot more better players, have bigger uh, talent pool, um, better clubs, like, and all that would lead to, you know, then you've got more entertaining players that people want to go and watch, you're going to sell more tickets to games, like, it's like this whole thing. Um, so, coaching is obviously a massive part of it. So, yeah, if, if you were given that, that position, where would you start? What would be your priorities? Where do you uh, where do you think, knowing the resource that England has, the, the, the struggles that England has with facilities and whatever it else yeah. might be, um, yeah, what, what would your plan be? The first thing I would say is that I'd find it very difficult <clears throat> to undertake that role within the auspices of the governing body because you're already stymied by that, that structure of sport England type, you know, uh, philosophy, uh, structural, um, you, you know, they're going to deliver things in a certain way. You have to use various, you know, phrases which mean nothing. So that's a real problem for me to, uh, at the outset. But because we're speaking hypothetically, Sam, yeah, yeah. let me just go on then to say that I knew from the age of about, my early 20s, when I first started out, that the only way to improve players is to have great coaching. And so that's been my journey to try and help coaches. And we've discussed some of that today uh, because that was something that was told to me from people I looked up to. And I mentioned some of my contacts and mentors back in those days. A lot of them being American coaches, by the way, in America, not here, because they weren't around for me, um, except for somebody like Roy Packham. Um, so you would have to improve the standard of coaching. And, of course, to your question, now, how do you do that? Well, how long's a piece of string and we're already out of time? Now, the problem is that the pathway, and we've already mentioned something about that pathway, doesn't really exist for a coach in this country. That's why, to my shame, actually I'll take that back straight away, I used to tell guys who come on my level three courses when I was tutoring them, if you want to improve, I mean really improve, and make coaching your thing, your profession, the love of your life, if you really want to do that, you've got to leave this country and do it abroad. And I used to tell them that. And you know what? There's been three guys over the years who must have written that down, gone away and believed it and done it. 
And they've thanked me for it after they've come back. I just mentioned that a few minutes ago about guys that did that. That's what I was pertaining to. So it breaks my heart to have to say that because here's the deal. If you can't, in your particular area of the country, have a club that has a superior coach and or program that you can go along to like I did at Crystal Palace, what are you going to do? You're not going to be exposed to that pathway of excellence. So that's a problem. That's the first thing. Secondly, time on the floor. The only way to improve your coaching is not to go on the internet now and back in my day, read a book before internet. That won't make you a better coach. It will help you gain knowledge, but you've got to go on the floor and do it. So that's what I used to say to, to guys who unfortunately there's more and more of them and they're the younger millennials. I hate you guys. Uh, no, I'm only kidding. They talk a good game. That's my big phrase. They, I don't want to hear it. Show me what you got on the court. I'll tell you whether you can coach or not. I don't want to hear it in a thing like this that you know how to defend the, the pick and roll five different ways. Can you teach it on the floor? That's my only judge and measure of you as a coach. What can you show me on the floor that you can do? Which, of course, pertains to players as well, by the way. Mm -hmm. So that's, I'm getting into it. I don't want to get into it too far. But the last part of that, because you asked me in this hypothetical, and it is hypothetical, role for me, the standard of play in our leagues. If, and you've seen some of the recent scores, and this happens year after year, look at the, especially in the girls' basketball recently, if you're winning games at the weekend by 50, those players aren't getting any better. You have to have tough competition. That's why our junior teams at Crystal Palace, and I'm talking now way back again, Roy started this and I continued it, we played them against men's teams. Because, you know, there's no point playing a junior team and winning by 30. We had all this talent. How are we going to make them better? Let's play against tougher competition. Now, these other countries, let's take Spain as a quick example. They go every one of their National League games that those kids play, 14s through 18s, they're all, most of them are going to be tough games. Those guys are going to get better in a heartbeat. Plus, you've got proper coaches coaching them. There's your... I've meshed the two things together for you. So those would be the two main areas that I'd have to uh, deal with. The second which of which I can't do anything about. Yeah, we say, can't how, suddenly how magic better competition for our junior leagues. So what do you do? I'll tell you. Here's an obscure one for you. Jack Majewski. We always already mentioned him. Jack's, we call him Crazy Jack because he's, he's a good guy, but... He's crazy. <laughs> he tried. He tried to take his kids to play abroad. Yeah. In a league to make them better. That's the first time I've ever heard of anybody trying to do that. But of course, he is Polish. So maybe he he knows something we know. You. It's a problem. Yeah. It's a problem. I don't know how to solve the second bit. The first bit. Getting coaches to understand acquisition of knowledge, continuous professional development. But putting them on a pathway where they they don't they're not told by some incongruous committee at the governing body that you've made it and we want you to be our national team coach. Don't get me started on this little subject when they haven't done anything yet. Yeah. So I flip that around a little bit 
Um, Basically setting up a system so that people have to put in the work. They've got to do their due, you you know, put, in the, put in the hours before yeah. they get into any sort of position of responsibility. But you've got to do it on the floor, Sam. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. You can't just suddenly talk a good game yeah. or come up with all the sound bites yeah. and the, and the uh, jargon and think you're a coach. But then how, how do you how do you actually, like, you're saying that, you know, so we're talking about the hypothetical situation, your task with improving coaching. Yeah. You're saying that basically you need to increase their time on the floor yeah. uh, to be able to improve. How do you do that? It's, it's a tough one. I would, first of all, I'd make it mandatory. Uh, like, I don't know if it's still going because I've been out of the, the loop a little bit yeah. recently, but like I alluded to earlier, when I was in touch with all these other countries, federal uh, coaching uh, associations, yeah. you know, I knew for a fact that some of these countries, it's mandatory to have a license to coach in their national leagues. You have to be a member of the coach association and you have to attend minimum two clinics. So you're actually improving. Including yeah. their national their equivalent of our national conference. I tried to get this done here when Alan Richardson, so this is prior to Brian Aldred, who's the incumbent, as the I don't even know what they call them anymore. They're the guys in charge of supposedly coaching development in this country. I roll my eyes because, you know. It, it's never happened. And I I had this conversation with Alan. He's still around. Ask him. And he, he'll hopefully remember it. Make it mandatory. Oh, no, we can't do that in this country. So that's the first thing I'd do. Right. Next, you've got a, a kind of captive audience now. Because you ain't coaching and I'm quality controlling you in some way, shape or form. Yeah. So that's that's at least... A first step, and then I would physically go around and help people on the floor in their gym in any part of the country. In fact, put that on your website that I'm available to do that, and I will do it to this day. My personal situation has changed a little bit where my time isn't so, but I'm you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I'm talking from my heart now, as you yeah, can probably yeah, yeah. do. And Tony, get him on this because yeah. he'll tell you the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, he he's prepared if in a way to do it as well. I mean, somehow we'd have to get paid. <laughs> Let me just throw that one in as an aside. But you're asking me what I would do. Those are some of the things I would do. I'm not saying I'm, you know, the English answer to, to John Wooden or Pat Riley or Greg Popovich. But I know what I can bring to the table along with folks like Tony G., John Collins, Dave Titmus, Bob Martin, and I could go down a, a list yeah. of what we would call more experienced coaches who have paid their dues, done it at a high level, got, if you want, I'm not into this myself, but if you want, got the trophies and accolades to, to prove it and can help you, mm. can help you and can help the game in this country. Bring us, bring us along. Bring us along and let's see what we can do to improve the standards. So, yeah, that's definitely something I would do. I think that's a, a good place to wrap it up. Um, if we do have any uh, aspiring coaches watching that want to reach out to you, uh, what is the best way of them contacting you? Give them you? my email address, Sam. What I'm is your happy. email address? Coach MWD at 
gmail.com. Okay, we've got it on record. There it is. Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've gone two hours and five minutes on the dot. Um, thank you so much for making the journey across to East London. And uh, like you said, we'll definitely do a, a part two at some point in the future. Thank you so much, Sam. And once again, I appreciate everything you do with your hoops fix. And, uh, we, you know, we as basketball needed somebody like you to come along to do that. And uh, keep up the good work. And we'll see each other again. Definitely. Thank you very much. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.